The vast majority of us have probably never wondered what the actual biochemistry or the biological process is to thinking. However, have you ever wondered what would happen if a part of your brain was removed? Can you still survive? Or even better yet, what would happen if they cut your brain in half? These sound like horrible stories made up from bad science fiction movies, but these are actual stories of individuals who have had parts of their brain removed or had their brain cut in half and live to tell about it. Electricity. Well, technically electrical impulse. That is all we are made up of. It's an electrical impulse that is sent from your brain to your heart that causes your heart to beat. It's an electrical impulse that is sent from your brain to your lungs that cause your lungs to expand and contract and breathe. It's electrical impulse that is from one neuron to the next neuron that allows us to think and hear and see and act. Everything that we do is controlled by these teeny tiny microscopic electrical impulses traveling down the neurons. They're received from the dendrites. The electrical impulse travels down the dendrite to the cell body. The cell body is responsible for sorting out the different electrical impulses that are coming into the neuron. And there's lots of electrical impulses that are converging on one neuron at a time. And so the cell body differentiates these electrical impulses and determines which electrical impulse it's going to respond to and sends that electrical impulse down the axon to the axon ending where neurotransmitters are released from the, ner- from the axon ending and then released into the synapse, carrying that electrical impulse in a chemical form by that neurotransmitter to the next neuron. And there, those neurotransmitters will bind to the dendrites of the next neuron and send that electrical impulse down that neuron until it reaches a muscle, contracts that muscle for muscle movement, or until it reaches the other neurons to create a picture, the parts of our brain to hear, any number of things. So at a very, very microscopic level, We are all just electrical impulses. Now, what happens when you put all those electrical impulses together to create things like thoughts? That's where the macro macro parts of the brain come into play. Our brain is divided into two hemispheres, the right and the left hemisphere. The right and the left hemisphere on a grand scale is responsible for different things. Your left hemisphere is responsible for uh, language skills. Your ability to hear this podcast is actually your left hemisphere. Processing those language skills. There's two key parts of your left hemisphere. There's Broca's area. Broca's area is responsible for actually making words. When you are talking, there are tiny little electrical impulses 
from those tiny little nerves in the left hemisphere of your brain that are being sent at a very, very alarmingly fast rate to contract the muscles in your throat and in your mouth and to make those different uh, facial expressions that allow you to make different sounds and allow you to make different words. And then a little bit farther back in the left hemisphere, closer to the uh, frontal temporal lobe or closer back is the Renke's area. And Renke's area is responsible for understanding language. It is what allows you to comprehend what is being said to you. It is what allows you, when you hear other people speaking, for you to understand that maybe they're speaking in a foreign language and then to differentiate some of their language from what your native language is. That is what the function of Reinke's area is. And overall, that is the function of your left hemisphere, processing language and language skills. It has other aspects as well. It's largely responsible for logic and reasoning. Left brain thinkers tend to be concrete thinkers. They like facts. They like information that is tangible and easy to uh, uh, understand because it's factual in base. And then there's the right hemisphere. The right hemisphere is responsible for a lot of our visual, our spatial organizational information. It's responsible for being able to manipulate items within our mind, being able to um, take a look at maybe say a trunk and all of the luggage that needs to be put in the trunk and the right hemisphere is responsible for being able to organize it. Those Tetris-like games, Tetris-like structures, a, the right hemisphere is responsible for being able to walk into an empty room and visualize all the furniture and the furnishings and the things that need to be in there. Some people are better at this than others. Some people are better at writing speeches or writing papers than other people. It doesn't make anyone better than the other. It just makes them different. And we all have these unique abilities. One of the unique things about the human brain, though, is that we also have the corpus callosum. The corpus callosum is the dense neurons that connect the right and the left hemisphere. And it allows our right hemisphere information to be shared with our left hemisphere information so that we can see the whole picture. But sometimes in some individuals, this doesn't function properly. Or as with the case of Henry, his was severed. They actually went in and cut his, hemis his corpus callosum, separating the left and the right hemisphere, but leaving them within his brain. Henry sat at the table, quietly looking at the puzzle. When the man standing next to him asked him, do you recognize this? Henry responded, no, he didn't recognize it. He didn't believe that he'd ever seen it before. What Henry didn't know was that each and every day he had seen the same puzzle. 
You see, when doctors went in and severed his corpus callosum, they cut down a little bit too deep and they cut a major structure underneath the corpus callosum. Deep inside the brain, they cut all the way down to his hippocampus. And the hippocampus is key for memory consolidation, turning those short-term memories into long-term memories. We'll talk about this when we get to chapter seven. So Henry really did not think that he had ever seen this puzzle. Every day he came into the lab and they gave him the same puzzle and they asked him, have you ever seen this puzzle? And Henry responded, no, I don't believe I've ever seen it because he really did not believe that he had ever seen it. And yet every day he was able to get faster and faster at finishing the puzzle, although he didn't remember doing it from one day to the next. This really shows the amazing neuroplasticity of our brains. Our brains are able to remap. Those neurons are able to reach out and connect with other neurons, neurons that they hadn't ever previously connected with, or maybe would never ever connect with. But because Henry, his corpus callosum had been severed, now it, the brain needed to make new neural connections. And so it made new neural connections, making Henry faster and faster at this puzzle every day, even though he had no recollection of ever seeing the puzzle before. That is the amazing ability of our brains. No different than if a young child has a tumor and has to have part of a hemisphere removed or is born without a portion of their brain. These neurons are able to grow and reconnect and make new connections with other neurons that they previously had never made before. And that's one of the amazing abilities of our brain. Now I'm sure you're asking, well, why on earth were doctors so mean to go in and sever Henry's corpus callosum? The reason that they severed Henry's corpus callosum or cut his corpus callosum in half, essentially leaving him with two brains within his skull, was because Henry had a, um, an accident years beforehand. He had a bicycle accident, collided with a car, and he had suffered because of the brain trauma and the swelling in his brain. He was suffering from seizures. He had multiple seizures every day. It was impairing his life. He couldn't function. He couldn't work. And so the only thing that doctors knew to do was to go in and sever his corpus callosum. Because what this does, what they believe seizures are, seizures are like an electrical storm. When all of the neurons start to fire in a very random pattern all together, causing the body convulsions that are characteristic of epilepsy. And so what they did was to stop these seizures, they severed the corpus callosum. And it did, in fact, stop his seizures. In the case of Henry, they just cut down a little bit too deep. And that severed his memory as well. Because the structures that they cut into in his midbrain were key for memory, the hippocampus, which is closely in close proximity to another key structure, which is the amygdala. The amygdala is key for our aggression 
and our fear and a lot of other emotional responses, which leads us to the next man that we're going to talk about, Phineas Gage. We'll come back to Henry. Don't let him slip from your memory because we'll talk about Henry Henry again next week and the week after. But Phineas Gage, Phineas Gage, you may have read about him in the textbook. Long time ago, he was working on a railroad and had a metal railroad rod driven up through his skull, through his eye, and through the front part of his brain, the frontal lobe, which is located right behind your forehead. And the front, they were able to remove the metal rod from his brain and from his head, and he didn't die. But they noticed that he had a huge change in his personality. He was no longer the fun, happy-go-lucky guy that he was. He was short-tempered now. He was angry. And there was other aspects of his personality that had changed. People said he just wasn't himself anymore. It was like he became a totally different person. This case study has given us a lot of information and gave us a lot of information very early on on the function of the frontal lobe. The frontal lobe of the brain is key for our personality and our mem- and some aspects of our decision-making. Phineas Gage became incredibly impulsive after the damage to his frontal lobe. He wasn't able to make sound or good decisions anymore. The frontal lobe is actually the last part of your brain to fully develop. It doesn't fully develop until you're in your 20s. However, it's not a good excuse when your parents say, what were you thinking, to say, I don't know. I just wasn't thinking because my frontal lobe isn't fully developed. We have the ability to make good decisions. We also, because the brain is a muscle, have the ability to strengthen that. We have the ability to increase our impulsivity and our attention. Although, research has shown that thanks to technology, our attention span and our impulsivity are negatively correlated. Our impulsivity is on the rise and our attention span is on the decrease. Phineas Gage gave us a lot of information, though, about what the function of these different parts of the brain do. The frontal lobe, after the rod was removed, changed his personality dramatically. We also know, or we reports indicate, that the rod may have gone through his amygdala, or at least the neurons connecting to his amygdala, deep inside that midbrain, leading to his more aggressive behavior and his aggressive responses. Now, thankfully, today, we don't have to drive metal rods through people's brains. We don't have to sever their corpus callosums or, as they were doing in the 50s, conduct frontal lumbotomies, where they go in and they remove a portion of the frontal lobe because they believe that you're possessed or that it was causing mental retardation. All of that information they found out to be false. We now have functional MRI. And so we can put people in an MRI machine and have them look at words or 
conduct some kind of test or use their brains in some way so that we can see the flow of electricity. We can see those neurons as they're being stimulated. We can see the neurons as they go from a resting potential, which means that they're not really being utilized, they're just hanging out, to receiving that electrical impulse and having an action potential, sending that electrical impulse down the neuron to the dendrites of the next neuron. We know that the occipital lobe, which is far back in the back side of your brain, back at the uh, back end, is responsible for visual information. It processes all the things that we see. So our eyes receive this electrical impulse. They send that electrical impulse down the dendrites, down the axons, to the axon endings. The axon endings release neurotransmitters, connecting it to another neuron. And that cascading effect goes all the way to the occipital lobe in the back of the brain. And that part of the brain is what is responsible for creating everything that we see. The temporal lobe, you have a right and left temporal lobe located on the right and left side of your brain, approximately where your ear is or right above your ear. And that part of your brain, the temporal lobe, is responsible for hearing. It's responsible for all of the information that we hear. The parietal lobe, which is the top part of your brain, the crown of your brain, the top of your head, the parietal lobe is responsible for a lot of our touch and sensory information. It contains the primary somatosensory cortex. And the primary somatosensory cortex is responsible for all of our sensations. Like when we feel things that are too hot. Or when you feel things that are too cold. It's responsible for processing that tingling sensation when your foot is falling asleep or when your arm is falling asleep, when there's a lack of blood flow to that area. That is the, the primary somatosensory cortex function. Very closely associated with the primary somatosensory cortex is the primary motor cortex. The primary motor cortex is located actually at the back part of the frontal lobe. And it's right next to the primary somatosensory cortex. So that when we feel that sensation of our legs starting to tingle, the primary somatosensory cortex, the neurons are stimulated and they quickly activate the neurons in the primary motor cortex. They send that electrical impulse over to the motor cortex. The motor cortex sends an electrical impulse down your spinal cord to the muscles in your legs for you to move or contract or change positions so that your leg doesn't fall off because of a lack of blood flow. And that is how all of our movements are created. We sense something. It sends an electrical impulse up our spine, which is part of your central nervous system, to our brain, the other part of your central nervous system, where your brain processes this information activating neurons that send a message down the spinal cord to the muscles. When you have a stomach ache, how do you know you have a stomach ache? Because there are sensory neurons located in your abdominal cavity. 
that tell you, hey, something's not right. Send a message down and we grab our stomach. Maybe we double over in pain, any number of things. But what happens if this doesn't function properly? There is a video posted about congenital hyperinsensitivity to pain. And what happens in these individuals when they're born, for whatever reason, those sensory neurons don't function properly. They don't send a message of pain up to our brain. In these individuals with this very rare condition, their brain is never told that anything is painful. And so they run the risk of dying from things like appendicitis or even a broke arm because they don't realize that their arm is broke. There's never a message of pain. They don't realize that they have a stomach ache or that they could have potentially some deadly disease or bowel obstruction, have some internal bleeding, because there's never that message of pain that is sent to their brains. So pain can serve a little bit of a function. We'll talk about that as we go forward as well. What about those neurotransmitters? I've mentioned them several times. Neurotransmitters play a key role. They are the chemical messengers that are found throughout your brain and throughout your body. And these chemical messengers send messages that are either excitatory or inhibitory. Now, why would you want to inhibit some of your behaviors? Or why would some things, some messages need to be inhibited? Well, pain can serve a good function, alerting us that something's wrong, but sometimes our pain can become overwhelming, and we may want to block some of that pain. And so that's some of the inhibitory messages that are sent. These neurotransmitters are like keys. They fit at a very, very specific, precise point on the dendrite, and they are what is responsible for, cha- for transferring that electrical impulse from one neuron to the other. So as the electrical impulse is traveling down the axon of one neuron, it gets to the axon ending, and it is going to cause the axon ending to release a specific neurotransmitter. Maybe it releases acetylcholine. If acetylcholine is released, it's probably because you are making some kind of muscle movement. Acetylcholine is the main excitatory neurotransmitter. And it's responsible for the vast majority of our muscle movements. Whenever we want to walk, talk, move our arms, you're releasing acetylcholine. Acetylcholine is released and it binds to the dendrites of the next neuron, the neuron that's receiving the electrical impulse. And so that excitatory impulse is going to activate the next neuron and create this cascading effect causing your muscles to move then and hopefully move in the direction that you want them to. Now, in addition to acetylcholine, dopamine also plays a role in our muscle movements. And we know this because individuals who have Parkinson's disease, they don't have enough dopamine. The neurons that produce the cells in our brain that produce um, dopamine start to die off in individuals who have Parkinson's disease. 
and this causes the tremors and the lack of smooth muscle movements that you see in individuals who have Parkinson's. That uncontrollable shaking is because dopamine is activating. There's not enough dopamine available at that neuron. And so it's not making, it's not sending a smooth electrical impulse. It's not activating enough neurons, causing there to be a little bit of a tremor or shake. There's also tends to be a lower level of acetylcholine. So the two working together or not being able to work together in this case, because there's not enough of them causes the shakes and tremors and the um, activation of muscles when they shouldn't be in Parkinson's patients. There's a lot of other neurotransmitters, things like serotonin. Serotonin is key for our mood, for elevating our mood and making us feel happy. GABA, gamma immunobaritic acid, is key for our anxiety and reducing our anxiety. So GABA sends an inhibitory message so that we can reduce our anxiety. The belief is that people who suffer from anxiety disorders, they don't produce enough GABA. And so we give them a pill that mimics GABA because all of our drugs or the vast majority of our drugs are either an agonist or an antagonist. An agonist is going to mimic that um, neurotransmitter. So your anti-anxiety drugs, they work by mimicking GABA. They are synthetic chemicals that bind to the receptor sites and make that neuron believe that GABA has been bound to that receptor site. And so it sends that inhibitory message to release and to negate or inhibit our anxiety. There's also glutamate. Glutamate is key for memory and for some aspects of learning. These are just some of the neurotransmitters that are covered in your textbook and in your weekly discussion board this week. Those neurotransmitters are key for all of our behaviors and our functions. An imbalance of neurotransmitters can lead to an imbalance in some of our behaviors. As we go forward, we'll talk about all of the drugs that work as agonists and antagonists with these neurotransmitters coming together to create behaviors or enhance behaviors, as in the case with some of the street drugs that we'll talk about. There's also, and I've mentioned the agonists, antagonists. Botulism or Botox is an antagonist, which means that it blocks that signal. It blocks that neurotransmitter from binding to the dendrite of the receiving neuron. So how does Botox work? Well, what Botox does is it's actually a neurotoxin. What it does is uh, large doses of it will actually paralyze the neuron. Because when you inject Botox into wherever, say you're going to inject it into your facial, facial muscles so that you can get rid of your wrinkles. So if you get an injection of Botox into your facial muscles, what it's doing is those neurons in that muscle are now, the, the dendrites are being, um, the dendrites have, uh, have Botox 
um, attached to them. And so when acetylcholine is released and it tries to bind to the receptor site of those neurons within the muscle in your face, there's nowhere for it to bind to. The site is blocked by Botox or botulism. And so it cannot cause that muscle to contract. If the muscle can't contract, then you don't have wrinkles. And that's how Botox works. Now, you want to make sure that you're getting your Botox from an authorized dealer, somebody that is regulated by the FDA, because a small amount of Botox will paralyze the muscles that you want them to in and around your face. A slightly larger amount of Botox will start to spread and not only paralyze the muscles within your face, but may potentially paralyze other muscles. There was a couple down in Florida about two years ago that went and got Botox off market, got it from somebody who was not authorized by the FDA, and they just wanted to clear up some wrinkles in their faces. So they got Botox injections in their face. Although because it wasn't Botox that was regulated by the government or by the FDA, this botulism started to spread. Not only did it paralyze the muscles in their face, they started to feel that they couldn't move the muscles in their arms. Their arms weren't working. And so they immediately thought something was wrong. And so they drove to the hospital. Within 30 minutes, they weren't able to move the muscles in their arms or their legs. And doctors estimated that they did not have much longer to live because what eventually would happen is the botulism would have spread to the neurons in your abdominal and your chest cavity that control your breathing and your respiratory rate. And it would have paralyzed those muscles, so they would have died. So that's how botulism works. Botulism, or Botox, is an acetylcholine antagonist. It blocks the receptor site, so acetylcholine can't bind to the neuron and can't send an electrical impulse. There's a whole lot more about the central nervous system and the peripheral nervous system in your textbook that you should pay attention to. What we've been talking about is how your central nervous system interacts with your peripheral nervous system. To send these impulses from your brain and your spinal cord to your muscles and your organs throughout your body. This is how we form all of our movements, how we process our thoughts, how we see things, how we hear things, and how we feel things, which is what we're going to be talking about next. All of our sensations. We're going to be building upon these neurotransmitters and the functions of the neurons to see all the things that are around us in the world and to hear and touch and feel them. So as you go through the day, think about what neurotransmitters are you using? And even more importantly, one thing I didn't hit on is where do you get them? Most of them are found in the foods that are around us. So eat a balanced diet, beef up your neurotransmitters, think happy thoughts, activating all those neurons in your brain.